in Seattle, Washington. I'm Zach Jabal, and welcome to a special episode of the Five Hair Podcast, where today I'm joined by Louisa Rose, who's the head winemaker at Yolumba in uh, the Barossa Valley in Australia. Louisa, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, Zach. Lovely to be speaking to someone in a beautiful part of the world like Seattle. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and same, although I, I can only envision the uh, beauties of of uh, Barossa through uh, pictures, never been, uh, one day, soon, hopefully, uh, definitely near the top of my list. So let's start with just some background first for uh, folks who might not be familiar. Can you tell me a little bit about Yolumba? What What's the some of the history of the winery and, and maybe more specifically kind of where are you located? Sure. Well, let's start with where we are. So, And you're right, we are another beautiful part of the world, as most wine regions, of course, are. Um, so I'm in the Barossa, um, and the Barossa is about um, one hour out of Adelaide, which is the uh, small capital city of South Australia. Now, South Australia is the state in Australia, which if you look at the big, uh, the big mainland of Australia, I would say it's sort of in the middle and down the bottom. Gotcha. Most of Australia is, um, you know, is desert on the inside, um, but around the edges, particularly around the, the, the bottom southwest and then the, uh, the, the, the middle to southeast um, and up the east coast is where uh, we get some rainfall. And that's where um, most of our population is. It's where most of our food growing um, and agriculture country and, of course, where most of our wine regions are. So the Barossa was um, established um, back in the 1840s. Um, by settlers that came in, free settlers, as, uh, as South Australians are very proud to say that they weren't settled by convicts coming out of England. Um, but mm. we were settled by a number of communities that came out, mostly from Europe, um, um, people from England and also people that uh, came out from, um, from Germany, um, uh, particularly Lutheran people that came out to practice their religion. Um, so we have this beautiful sort of culture of, of sort of you know the the, the Lutheran and food and, and and churches and things around the Barossa as well as um, many of the vineyards that they uh, that they planted. And then Yolumba itself is, um, I, I take it to know, uh, perhaps uh, one of the oldest wineries in the in this in the country. Yeah, so it's the oldest family-owned winery um, and one of the oldest. Um, it was established in 1849 um, by an Englishman, uh, Samuel Smith. He was a brewer from Dorset and he brought his family out um, in the 1840s to, uh, to for a better life, which I find it incredible that people, you know, would go halfway around the world to somewhere they'd never seen and, and probably knew very little about. Um, must have been tough times, um, you know, back back at home. But anyway, he came out with his family, and um, he was a, um, a, a horticulturalist as well as being a brewer and he and a gardener. And he worked for one of the um, the people, the um, families in the in the in the Barossa that were were sort of establishing the region. Um, then he went away to the uh, gold fields for a few months in Victoria and made his fortune, a small fortune, but enough to come back mm-hmm. and buy the land and start to plant grapes and fruit trees and establish what is now Yolumba. So. We um, we're still owned by by his descendants, um, wow. Robert Hill Smith, uh, the fifth generation, and, and Robert's daughter Jessica, who's the sixth generation, are, are very involved in the business. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a pretty um, a pretty amazing business and an, an incredible family. Wonderful. And I think we'll come back to Yolumba in just a moment. But I'll also, how about a little bit of background on you? Um, kind of what's your uh, history in wine, and and how did you kind of get into it, and then how did you end up at Yolumba? Yeah, well, my story is pretty quick because I've only ever worked for two people, or well, two families, really, <laughs> my, um, my, my own family. Um, so I grew up in Victoria, which is um, the state on the, on the southeast um, of the mainland. Um, and in fact, I grew up in the city of Melbourne. Um, mm-hmm. And as I was growing up, my, um, 
my parents uh, planted, uh, bought, bought a small amount of land in the Yarra Valley and started planting some vineyards. So all my weekends and holidays were always spent um, on the vineyard. And I loved the sort of seasonality of that. You know, the, the winters were cold and muddy, but, um, you know, it was fun planting grapes and pruning grapes and, of course, then, you know, training them and ultimately picking the grapes. And so I loved doing that. That was my sort of, you know, my high school years. And then, you know, I thought maybe winemaking was a, would be a, um, a good job. So I came to South Australia when I finished um, well, a basic science um, degree in, in Melbourne. I came to South Australia to study winemaking and got a job while I was still studying um, there. I got a job at Yolumba in a, for a vintage and um, they asked me to come back for the next vintage, which was 1993, and uh, I'm still here. Wow. That is, yeah, that, you're right. In a way, that is a very, very simple story. But I imagine, um, as we'll get into in a little bit, that almost uh, three decades at uh, one winery, you've seen probably um, a lot of things that have changed. And maybe actually, let's let's actually talk a little bit about that. So, you know, it, from your perspective, Louisa, like what what has changed maybe uh, at Ulumba and, and maybe more broadly in the Australian wine industry in that period of time? Sure. Well, um, and they're intricately linked, and and I was, you know, very very fortuitous, very lucky, really, with the, with my timing coming into the wine industry, and also, you know, certainly to Yolumba, because those those period that period of time in the early nineties was coming out of quite a, um, you know, a, a depressed time in the wine industry in the nineteen eighties. In fact, in the Barossa, um, the South Australian government were. Um, had an incentive, you know, they were paying people to pull out grapevines because there were wow. more grapevines than, than was needed for wine. Um, there were a lot of vines that had been planted to make fortified wines, which is where a lot of the Australian wine industry history had been. Um, and while white wines were, you know, had some sort of, you know, cachet, you know, that people weren't drinking reds. I know it's hard to believe, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like another era entirely. It's absolutely. And uh, I suppose one thing you learn in the wine industry is that nothing's forever. Um, yeah. And there are certainly fashions and things, but we'll, we'll probably get onto that later. Um, and, and so, and, and there really wasn't, you know, it wasn't a booming industry and it was still very domestic focused. And then in the early nineties, uh, you know, we started to, to, to send wines, you know, around the world um, and, and to the UK and, and of course, to America um, and, and, and other places. And all of a sudden there was this sort of this sort of increase in excitement. There were people, you know, planting more varieties, new varieties. You know, we talk about new varieties, but new varieties to Australia, looking at new regions, looking at new areas for planting grapes. And as the demand grew, you know, around the world for Australian wines, there were these opportunities for this expansion. And so the people that were involved in it, and, you know, here I was as a young winemaker, um, you know, taking for granted that this is the way things probably always were and always mm. will be. Um, and it was a really exciting time. Um, and we were able to do things like, you know, experiment, you know, plant our first, well, really start to work with our first Viognier, you know, grapes and, and establish a new wine and or new wines. Um, you know, we started... Um, planting grapes in a in a region, you know, a new region called Rattenbully, which is, you know, right next to a very old and established region called Kunawara on very similar soil. But, um, you know, how ex how exciting has that been to to follow the development of that region, um, and to, to see our wines, you know, in a global context, and to, to 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 travel with those wines, and to see how, you know, the great chefs of the world, you know, fell in love with them and and created, you know, cuisines around them. So. Um, mm -hmm. It's been pretty. It's been a very exciting three decades, as you say. I'm sure I've, there's a decade in the middle I wasn't there for <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> uh, so, so you mentioned something that I think is actually very interesting to talk about, both maybe in the context of Yolumba as a winery, and then you and your own career, and that's um, sort of 
striking a balance, I suppose you might say, between um, understanding what a kind of ever-shifting uh, public might want out of wine, out of a, an individual wine or a winery or or even a region or something like that, with also, of course, you know, not um, sort of flailing around trying to do something different every vintage or every two vintages or whatever. So I, I know that, um, you know, you mentioned a little bit about planting Viognier. I know there's lots of innovation in your past, but how how do you kind of strike a balance between saying, you know, recognizing, I guess, what what consumer demand is um, at any given point and, and trying, of course, to look ahead to where it might be because wine is not a instantaneous process, you know, while while still kind of saying, you know, one of the one of the values of wine is its ability to kind of um, preserve tradition, I suppose. Yeah. And look, that's a really good question and, and one that we work with, you know, on a daily basis. Um, if you look at the wines that we are making you know, still at Yalumba. You know, some of those labels, and I've actually got a bottle sitting on my desk in front of me, it's, it's the Yalumba, the signature, which is a wine, it's a Cabernet Shiraz blend, and it's a wine that we've made under that label since 1962. So it's a wow. wine that's got a lot of tradition and a lot of history here. Um, each year it's actually dedicated to um, a person that's that's had a, a role to play within the business. Um, and, and here at a family-owned winery, you know, there's a lot of people that have worked here all their working lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know, there's a lot of um, emotion sort of you know around this wine um, internally as well as around the world and people know the wines often by the person they're dedicated to rather than the vintage. So there's mm-hmm. an example of a wine that we've been making for sixty years, if my decade yeah. counting is correct. Math checks out to yeah. me. And um, um, and yet, of course, that wine's had to evolve over time because. If we were making wines like we were making in the 60s or even in the early 90s, you know, our customers today in the early 20, 2020s wouldn't wouldn't be appreciative of, the, of that wine style. So it has to evolve. So it's important for us. And think, for example, in the mid-90s, you know, many Australian wines were being made with a lot of new oak. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I think it's, you know, in many ways what put some of the Australian red wines, particularly on the on the global, you know, map with these really yeah, exuberant, sure. flavourful, you know, lots of oak, lots of fruit, lots of alcohol in many cases. Um, now, if we were still making those wines, people got tired of them fairly quickly. So that evolution mm-hmm. away from the, the, you know, big is better, you know, to more elegance, to more subtle use of oak. You know, we, we have our own cooperage here, for example, um, okay. and um, which is a you know, amazing thing for a winemaker to have, have a cooperage, you know, on site. You can, you can literally, yeah. you can work with the coopers literally to make every barrel specifically for, you know, a parcel of grapes, particular wine, whatever it may be. Um, so we are able to evolve in style of oak and things through that as well. Use less new oak, even though we can make, we can make it ourselves. So, so there's an example, for, you know, just with one wine, for example, that we, that's really important to us. We couldn't not make the signature. But we have to make a wine, you know, which is both true to our style and our philosophy, but also something that people are going to want to drink. But within that also, I think, is the opportunity to do a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of experimentation. And, and as a, a team of winemakers and viticulturalists particularly, um, you know, we do a lot of um, um, you know, research and we do a lot of experimenting. We do a lot of trials. Many of mm-hmm. them will never see the light of day as a new product, but everything we do you know, teach you to something about wine. Now, sometimes it might be looking at new varieties. Um, and, you know, in the case of Viognier, which is something that we pioneered in Australia, um, you know, over a very long period of time, and it does, it takes 10 years or more from once you plant a, you know, a new variety um, until you really have, you know, you've been able to propagate it and plant a vineyard and grow that vineyard for three or four years before it starts to get some grapes and then try and work out how you're going to make it. 
Now, mm-hmm. how do you predict in 10 years' time what people are going to want to be drinking? <laughs> I mean, we don't even know if we're still going to be making alcohol in 10 years' time sometimes. Um, so there, there's a lot of – there is that balance of what, what can I do right now to, you know, to, to, to make sure that these are, you know, really relevant going out the door. But what can, what can we build up in our repertoire and our knowledge so that, you know, when, you know, if there's a demand for something that's a bit different, um, you know, we have something that we can, you know, wheel out, if you like, you know, down the track. This actually prompted a question that I, I wasn't I hadn't even thought of before we started this interview, but but now I'm kind of uh, fascinated to know the answer. So you mentioned that in some of the kind of in the early days of uh, Yolumba and uh, of the wine industry and and especially your time in it, that Australian producers, probably including Yolumba, were really focused mostly on the domestic market. And now, obviously, um, Australian wine is available, you know, the world over and and you know. Australia, I'm sure, is still an extremely important market for you, but there are other markets that are also important. And I'm wondering, you know, a, a thing that I've heard, you know, you hear sometimes in the wine trade is, oh, you know, such and such market, ha-, you know, th- th- there's a very kind of a, a, a very broad stereotyping of uh, the wine consumer in a given country. And I don't think those tend to carry a whole lot of accuracy. I mean, they might be extreme in an extremely broad sense accurate. But what I what I guess the question is, is, do you see a the demand from the domestic audience uh, kind of matching up with uh, what people in the international market are looking for? Um, and and if so, is that has that always been the case, or or is it more a case now that the wine community is a little more global and people maybe kind of the world over are looking for some of the same kinds of things? Yeah, look, it's a good question. Um, it's a really good question, actually, because it's something we talk about a lot, and it's very easy sometimes to pigeonhole. Um, a, a market, you know. Um, let me mm-hmm. let me take the example of the American wine drinker, um, you know. And, and I've heard I've heard people tell you know Australians tell me that you know, Americans, you know, that they, they they like to drink all their red wines sweet. Now, mm-hmm. there is in every country people you know that that love to have you know that love their drinking these beautiful juicy you know slightly sweet red wines. Um, but there are also people in every country that that that, that, that prefer their wines dry. Or don't yep. like red wines and only drink white wines or whatever. I mean, I, and so when you really get to know a market, you realise that they're all fairly similar, mm-hmm. and they all have the same different groups of people that that have the diversity in their tastes. Now, where where the really fun work starts is when you when you're working with with markets, and they, and it could be a domestic market, different city, you know, or an international market, you know, is to then start to work with the cuisines and work out, you know, for mm-hmm. those people that love to, to, to look at wine and how well it matches with food, you know, that, that can be really exciting then because then you find lots of, you know, new, new ideas about your own wines and other wines and, and how they go with food and, and how different cultures actually, um, you know, treat beverages, much less wine, um, you know, sure. with, with food. And that was one of the really interesting things when we started to work you know, more closely with with um, a market like, say, China, for example, mm-hmm. because they're not used to drinking alcohol necessarily, you know, as part of a meal, um, you know, they're, you know, more so with tea. Now, again, I'm, here I am doing exactly what I've just, you know, <laughs> said we should be careful of and generalising. Um, sure. But you do have to start sometimes with generalisations and work to the specifics. But, um, you know, once you start, you know, dealing one-on-one with people and, you know, that, that's that's when, you you know, the fun really starts. So let's take the example that you were mentioning earlier of Viognier and, and, you know, you mentioned that it's this decade long perhaps process from, you know, the, the first uh, cuttings to a product in bottle that you're selling in quantity. So what was the, what, what was it about Viognier that, that drew you, that drew the winery to it and, and really kind of pioneering it in, in Australia? 
Um, okay, so a couple of things. Uh, we have our own um, vine nursery, so mm-hmm. and have done for in the since the nineteen fifties. Um, so we have the ability, um, you know, to propagate varieties, um, new varieties if we like, import varieties from around the world through quarantine, you know, propagate them up from a few cuttings, uh, look at new clones or, or whatever that may be. So that's another. It's a bit like having a cooperage at one end of the winery and a nursery at the other. I mean, you know, it really is a candy shop of uh, of excitement here. <laughs> um, and so we have we, we we have a number of over the decades. You know, we've looked at a number of different varieties. Now, why Viognier specifically? Well, because the Barossa was settled, the first vines that were planted in the Barossa um, included varieties like Shiraz or Syrah, mm-hmm. um, Grenache and Mourvedre, varieties that were, you know, um, we now know were, you know, planted and, and, and continue to grow very successfully in the Rhone. Um, mm-hmm. And Grenache in the southern Rhone particularly, um, Shiraz also in the northern Rhone. Now, the Barossa, which I, I didn't, didn't give you much of a geography lesson before, there's two parts to the Barossa. Um, there's mm-hmm. the Barossa Valley, which is the lower, warmer um, part, um, v- lovely sort of fertile soils, um, you know, and you could sort of say well, it's a bit sort of like the southern Rhone, very similar climate too, that sort of Mediterranean, you know, warm, dry summers and, you know, cooler, wet winters. And then we have right next to the Barossa Valley, the Eden Valley, now, together, those two regions are the Barossa, but the Eden Valley is higher in altitude. It's cooler. The soils are less fertile, um, you know, and you could sort of say, well, it's a bit like the northern Rhone. Um, mm. Shiraz grows beautifully in the Eden Valley, makes beautiful aromatic perfumed wines. Um, and so this, you know, we, we had the reds already. And so thinking, well, perhaps Viognier, which does come from Condrieu and, and Chateau Grier in the, the northern Rhone, perhaps – you know, perhaps that perhaps it would grow well here in the Eden Valley, um, and so mm-hmm. it was a variety that um, you know ha- was almost extinct at the time. You know, we think there was somewhere around thirty acres of it in the world um, yeah. in in nineteen eighty when we first planted it, um, and then it wasn't really until the early nineties, you know, mid nineties, where we really started to, as I say, have vines that had some age on them and, and start to work with, you know, how to make it and how to produce a wine. For sure. And and I'm curious, too, because Viognier strikes me as, you know, for those who aren't super familiar with uh, with Viognier as a variety, you know, kind of known for its aromatic qualities, but but sort of different in a lot of ways than some of the other aromatic uh, varieties that we think about, like a uh, Gewurztraminer or something like what is what is the winemaking like on that? And, and is it is there some other variety that you like? What is your winemaking process like? And, and what is it kind of most similar to, I suppose? <laughs> well, that's a really, that's a, another really good question, because um, really to understand Viognier, we really had to turn our winemaking on its head. Um, mm. So if you go back to the early 90s, um, our, our winemaking here for white wines was was really based around varieties like Riesling. Mm-hmm. Um, and Semillon, which are the varieties that traditionally had grown in the Eden Valley and the Barossa Valley. Even Chardonnay was very new um, in Australia at the time um, as a, you know, as a, as a wine, which is hard to believe now given that Chardonnay is, you know, our, most, <laughs> our second most grown variety in the country and our most, our most grown white wine. But so we were, we were looking at this variety and it was completely the opposite to, to Riesling. Viognier was, um, you know, naturally very low in acidity, quite a full-bodied wine, very thick skins. And, you know, we, were, we started off trying to make it like we would make Riesling and made these very boring, very, you know, lacking in flavours, no aromatics, you know, sort of flabby wines and going, well, that's obviously not um, going to work. 
So we then started to sort of let it get a bit riper on the vines. And so much of winemaking is actually about understanding what happens in a vineyard and, and maximising, you know, the flavours and the characteristics in the grapes. So how do we do that? So we, we let the grapes get a little bit riper. We realised by a bit of trial and error the grapes actually needed to be out in the sunshine, um, almost sort of to the point where they got a suntan, which you would never do. You'd never do that on a, on a Riesling grape. Sure. And um, and then once then then we started to work. So we get the so we sort of started to get those flavours in the grapes. We started to see the beautiful sort of stone fruit and apricots and ginger that we sort of love in Viognier. Um, and then we say, well, how can we make that in the in the winery? And, and typically, we'd been making white wines by bringing the grapes in, keeping them very cold, protecting them against the air, filtering the juice, adding a yeast that probably came from Germany or France or something like that, you know, and these cold fermentations. And that's perfect for Riesling. Um, but, but it wasn't doing the Viognier any flavours. So what we started to do was experiment with using the yeast, the natural yeast in the vineyards, which at the time was, was quite was very, very unusual in Australia mm-hmm. particularly. Um, but, um, you know, we started, and admittedly we started pretty small, just with a couple, with a little tr- couple of trials, um, but realised very quickly that that was just getting so much more character out of the wines. Um, and so now, nowadays, the way we make Viognier is we get it right in the vineyard, we pick it when it tastes delicious, we bring them in, and we literally just press the juice, press the grapes, and the juice goes straight into wherever it's going to ferment, whether that be, um, a, you know, a mature, you know, neutral old French barrel or whether it's a, a, ta- a stainless steel wine tank. Um, we, okay. do no, we do nothing. We add nothing. We do no clarification. The wild yeast have piggybacked in out of the vineyards on the grapes and they've washed into the juice and they do the fermentation for us. So it's, it's – and now from that, you know, we make, that's how we make most of our wines here. Even Riesling, I know which sounds crazy, but we've actually wow. – it actually makes – you know, it's just a beautiful way to express the terroir and where the wines have come from is to use the, you know, the yeast and the, the, and the bacteria that come in, you know, from that terroir itself. Um, but that's a, a really there's a really important thing that, that, that sits behind all of that, and that is the health um, and the biodiversity of your vineyard. Because you can't, a winemaker can't just say, "Oh, I'm going to make a, a wine using the yeast in the vineyard." You know, you can't say that unless you've actually got a really diverse, healthy population of yeast in your vineyard. And that only comes if you've actually got a really healthy, biodiverse vineyard in the first place. And that's something that um, is incredibly important for us. It's one of our, you know, our, our, the five pillars of our sustainability program, but it's a really important part, that resilient terroir. And so we have lots of different things within our, you know, all of the lands that we, ca- we are caretakers of to make sure that we have that biodiversity and that natural balance and that really healthy um, ecosystem that, um, you know, one of the great things about it is you have this really healthy population of yeast that, that do your winemaking for you. Yeah. How good's that? I, I, I was going to say, you got the cooperage and you got the vine nursery in-house and apparently you got the winemaker in-house too, besides you, of course. Yeah, well, um, actually, it's cool. almost starting to sound like I'm a bit irrelevant now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I was going to say, hopefully your bosses aren't listening, but I assume they probably will be. So we, we, we are sure that someone needs to uh, to steer the ship, such as it is. Um, and actually, I'm curious about something that that prompted too, which is that um, you know, talking to to some other producers over the course of doing uh, the podcast and writing and things like that, one thing that comes up when we talk about biodiversity in vineyards and and sort of the health of the vineyard in a more holistic sense is also that uh, people have said to me that they feel like um, one of the things that it allows them to do is is to produce wines that can have 
sort of they can sort of be Goldilocks wines and that they can be really um, long lived and have the kind of, uh, you know, and red wines that sort of tannic structure and acidity and whites, maybe more just the acidity, um, but also a, an approachability in, in their youth um, that, you know, maybe is not always easy to find in other uh, in other vineyards and other regions. So, you know, is that something that you've seen? And and more broadly, how do you kind of look at that, maybe that balance between uh, a wine that is, you know, ageable versus enjoyable, right, when it's released and, and you know, kind of trying to triangulate there? You are full of good questions, Zach. I um, mean, it is my job. Do I, don't want to, how... I don't want my bosses to think I'm irrelevant. So, you, you do know. know how early it is in the morning for me, my poor brain. <laughs> um, no, no. Uh, look, uh, that is that is a great question. Uh I think um, the most important thing about wine is that whatever the wine is, if somebody goes to a restaurant and orders a wine or if somebody goes to a bottle shop and buys a bottle of wine, they should be able to take the cork out, take off the screw cap, however it's packaged, open it up and enjoy that wine the day they buy it. Mm. That is the most important thing. There is no point in making a wine and selling a wine and saying to somebody, don't open this wine for... 20 years or 10 years or five years, um, you might say to them, buy this wine, you know, it's going to evolve and it's going to do all of these amazing things over the next couple of decades. You know, you choose at that where in that evolution you might like it. But, I'll, you know, I'll never say to somebody, you can't open this wine yet. It would be like saying to somebody that's just bought a Maserati, great choice of car, don't drive it for two years. I mean, how, how ridiculous is that? If we really thought a wine wasn't ready to drink, we wouldn't release it. But what I know about wine, because, you know, I'm in that, that, that beautiful place where I can see wines from the minute they're starting to be created, is that great wines are beautiful and, and, and enjoyable from, you know, from the day those grapes are crushed. And so I actually think it's a really natural thing for wines to have all those, those different stages in their lives, um, but they should always be enjoyable. And great wines will – great wine – and this is my definition of a great wine. It, it is a great wine throughout its life, and that will have some ability to age. Now, now not all wines are necessarily made to be great long-living wines. Some wines are just there for a bit of fun, drink them within the first couple of years and enjoy them and then, you know, buy the next vintage. Um, but, but you know, I, and, I, and maybe maybe I'm sport because maybe that is a particular characteristic of, you know, Australian wines is that they are so beautiful, young, but then do have that ageability. A couple of last questions for you since we're, we're sort of talking about some of these things. I'm, I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned sort of at the beginning of this conversation the, uh, you know, just sort of the history of the winery and the thing that I always think about when I think about Australian wine and I think about, you know, uh, some of the more established producers is um, some of Australia's resources in terms of old vines. And and I'm curious, you know, do you get to work with some uh, old vine, uh, you know, fruit or, you know, old vines themselves? And and if so, kind of, can you explain what the, what, what magic there might be in there for, you know, for our listeners who, you know, might not, you know, get a chance to encounter it at the, at the rate that you do at least. Yeah, well, another thing that we're incredibly lucky to have, um, particularly in South Australia and, and the Barossa, because we've never had phylloxera in, uh, in, in South Australia and, in fact, never had many of the other diseases um, which limit the, li- the life of a vine that many of, you know, um, the Northern Hemisphere wine-producing countries do have. So that means that we have, you know, the oldest, um, you know, continually producing um, vines of varieties like Shiraz and Grenache and Mouvedre and Semillon and Riesling 
um, you know, here in here in the Barossa. And that is an amazing resource to have. I mean, the oldest Shiraz vineyard in the world grows in the Barossa. It's owned by Langmile Winery, and it's called the Freedom Vineyard. And it was planted mm-hmm. in 1843. Wow. The oldest vineyard that we own um, is a Grenache vineyard, which we call our tricentenary vineyard because it was planted in 1889. Uh, and, in fact, we make a wine called the tricentenary Grenache um, from that vineyard. The vines are are quite incredible, really, to think about what they've been through, you know, and they've done every year of their life, you know, while the whole world has changed, you know, in, in you know, well over 100 years. Um, and I think about them as having, you know, most of their biomass, most of the grapevine is under the ground because mm-hmm. every year the roots just keep growing, assuming that you've got the soil depth and, and um, so that. And then, but there's, and there's this little bit of the grapevine that's on the top that every year, you know, tries grows grapes or grows leaves and, and grows shoots and then grows grapes and someone comes along and picks the grapes and then chops all the shoots off and the vine does it all again the next year. And yet uh, most of the vine is buffered underground, um, mm-hmm. you know, in that sort of much more sort of moderate sort of climate, if you like, that, that's under the ground. So they're buffered against seasonal variations. They're, um, you know, I often think the vines are taking a much more sort of long-term view than just the, that one year. Um, and so you do see much more consistency with the old vines. And also, um, you know, particularly varieties like Shiraz that are more full-bodied, are really beautiful. Sort of, it's not a it's not a bigness necessarily, but it's an it's a it's a length and it's a, a texture to their beautiful sort of fine tannins. They're um, mm-hmm. they're quite in, quite incredible, and and and, a, and again, a wonderful resource for winemakers to um, you know to have. Yeah, and I, and I can speak just as a wine you know kind of consumer and, and person who. Who loves it? There's there is a magic to when you get the chance to even be in the presence of some of these old vines. I've had the chance to see some not quite as old vines, but some some quite old vines in uh, California, and you realize yeah just just what the world was like when they were planted, what they've lived through, uh, what they might continue to live through. Yeah, uh, and uh, it is yeah it is a remarkable thing. I was actually in our um, in our old vine Grenache vineyard yesterday with some restaurateurs from um, from Sydney, and I was talking about. Um, you know, about exactly that, you know, pandemics, world wars, invention of the aeroplane, invention of cars, you know, yep. these vines aren't trellised because there was only horses and people in the vineyard then. Um, and then I was sort of thinking about the same thing about the Hill Smith family. And that's exactly what they've lived through in their six generations as well. And the, all the trials mm-hmm. and tribulations that they've gone through with the technology, uh, you know, increases and, and, and all of those sort of things and thinking what an amazing sort of you know, history it is to be involved in, um, you know, in industry like that. Yeah. And, and speaking of the family, let's, let's close on this. I know that one of the um, relatively newer uh, things you guys have introduced is uh, Samuel's collection. Can you tell me a little bit about those wines? Sure. So they're wines um, that are, so Samuel's collection named after Samuel um, Smith, the founder, the founding generation, mm-hmm. generation one. And they are, uh, well, we have a Shiraz, um, which is, you know, synonymous with Barossa, of course. So, of course, you'd have mm-hmm. a Shiraz. Um, and I think quite a sort of a modern sort of take on Shiraz. It is aged in uh, oak barrels that we make here in our own cooperage. So French and Hungarian and American oak we use um, for that. And it's from vineyards around the Barossa. So some from the Eden Valley with more aromatic and perfume and some from the Barossa Valley, a little bit more textural and, and full-bodied. But, you know, quite a juicy, medium-bodied sort of style of wine. Um, we have a Grenache, um, which is old vine, so not from that 1889 vineyard, um, but from vineyards that were that have been planted, you know, in the early 1920s, um, you know, and the the youngsters in there 
um, you know, more from the sort of, you know, 1940s, 1950s. So um, that beautiful sort of old, low, lower-yielding um, Grenache vines. Um, you know, quite a medium-bodied, juicy style. We don't use new oak when we make Grenache. I think one of our most food-friendly red varieties. Uh, you can have it in, you know, in 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 summer, uh, you know, you can chill it down slightly and have it, you know, and, and match it with your, your, your foods. Um, but equally delicious, you know, you know, as a more of a traditional red wine style in the cooler months. And then we have um, a Viognier, of course. So, you know, not, we, well, I've already talked about that, but not one of the one of the vines that were planted early on in the Barossa, but something that's really uh, made its home in the Eden Valley and synonymous now absolutely with, with your lumber. Um, and that Eden Valley uh, Viognier is, um, I think, you know, our most food-friendly um, white wine. Um, and I think as a variety, in fact, it's incredibly food-friendly. It, it crosses the boundaries of everywhere you'd want to go with food and wine matching, to so the spices, to the full-bodied foods, to the what you might typically drink with a white wine. But then because it's actually got quite a lot of uh, – it's got that richness and it's got quite a lot of – I talk about them as being sort of almost um, the, the refreshingly bitter, uh, you know, textures um, because it's it's low in acid, but it has this beautiful phenolic structure to the to the palate. You can match it with anything you'd match a red wine with. So, awesome. um, and we you might you might have gathered because I tend to mention food quite a lot as a winemaking <laughs> team here. We are we are really passionate, almost as passionate about our food as we are about our wines. So, not only do we love to make wines together, but we love to cook together. Um, and, um, you know, we spend an awful lot of time, um, you know, matching food and wine. And what we've discovered over the years is we haven't yet found something that doesn't go with Viognier. So mm. maybe there's a Very challenge cool. to, uh, to the listeners if they, um, if they can, they can find something that doesn't go well with Viognier, they might let me know. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Louisa, thank you so much for your time. I know, uh, you're still just waking up, uh, in, in the winter time, man, is that hard for me to wrap my head around <laughs> that sometimes here in the uh, afternoon in the summer, but that's, that's the world we live in. Uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Really fascinating to hear more about these wines and, uh, look forward to uh, continuing to enjoy them and, uh, talking to you again sometime in the future. Yeah, thanks Zach. I've really enjoyed that chat. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my Vine Pair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, Vine Pair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the Vine Pair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.